Okay, welcome back to the Beyond the Field podcast. I'm Ethan Asiwa. I'm here with my co-host, Kane Wallstrom. How are you, mate? Mate, going crazy here on lockdown. This is a COVID-19 lockdown special. Um, we are with our special guest, Aaron Walsh. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Just uh, managing the uh, lockdown with everybody else. Yeah, it's, um, it's new territory for a lot of people. Um, firstly, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Atomic Coffee, uh, for fueling us through our sessions. We can't wait to get back to you um, when this lockdown is finished. Um, I need one of those in Sewa. I need one. We need some good Atomic Coffee. I'd love one right now, to be honest. Um, delivery. Uh, delivery if they can hear us. <laughs> uh, but to kick it off, I'll pass it over to my co-host, Kane Mostrum. Cool. Aaron, uh, just some quick-fire questions to get things started. So, favourite holiday destination, even though you can't get there right now? Oh, that's a good one. I'm in my happy place. I love Kinloch. The golf course is unbelievable. And I went down there probably about four or five Christmases in a row, stayed at Acacia Bay, and went and played golf there just about every day. So, for my, like, memories, that sort of place, but but if I want to go somewhere tomorrow, be Kona, Hawaii. Nice. Good stuff. Um, if you had a unlimited budget, what would be your dream car right now? Oh, it's a hard one for me because I'm not much of a car guy. So, But what I do have, which I really like, and a little bit of a shout out, I have a nice Ford Ranger XLT. Cool. I, I, hear pretty, I hear you. I'm pretty happy with that right now. It's just getting the job done. But if I had a, like a little midlife crisis car, which I'm in that sort of demographic right now, probably a Porsche Career 911. Oh, nice. 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 Um, since we're on uh, the lockdown theme, uh, what is the one thing you refuse to share? Oh, that is a good one. I, mean, I wish my wife was here for that. Um, <laughs> dude, to be pretty honest, I'm pretty anal about food that I like. Okay. You know, like if you're having a nice dinner and someone sort of reaches over, I think my hand moves pretty quick and slaps it out of the way. I just like, go get your own. This is mine. <laughs> pretty territorial around the old food, to be honest. Fair enough. Um, now, I won't ask you to do them, but do you do any really good impersonations of, of anyone? No, I'm rubbish. <laughs> I'm absolutely rubbish. <laughs> you need to be um, born for that, probably. <laughs> And lastly, uh, what was your um, favourite or least favourite school subject? Our favourite PE. Mm. Uh, you yes. know, by far, by far, least favourite, um, which is probably not great with what you guys do, man. I was useless at maths. Times <laughs> table, sweet, um, normal stuff. Once it got into that calculus statistical realm, I didn't have the bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> Isa, I'll pass it back over to you, mate. So, mate, we um, just keeping casual. What talk about us? Talk about your upbringing, family, uh, where you grew up, all those likes. Yeah, um, brought up in probably one of the great illustrious suburbs of New Zealand of Flaxmere, um, down in Hawke's Bay. So, went to Hastings Boys. Um, Dad was a policeman, which was, and then he figured out he could get a job as a meat inspector. And the only reason he figured that out, they got heaps of time off. I don't even remember that back in the day. Like for three months, he'd go to work at seven on his bike and home at 8.30 and they'd still get paid, you know, working um, as a meat inspector. So he loved that. Mum was a nurse. And so sort of pretty standard, run-of-the-mill upbringing. Um, So I have a sister who's a year younger. And um, she's a pretty amazing woman. She lives in the Middle East and she has been working in northern Iraq with refugees. So wow, just wow. Sort of, um, working in amongst that, doing some incredible mahi, but just sort of, um, you know, after ISIS went through some pretty tough work. So, I mean, she's probably the, oh, not probably, she is the real probably story of our family. And so brought up in Hastings, real run in the mill, Hastings boys. Um, what was Hastings boys like? Mint. So like, it's quite interesting because with the Chiefs, Roger Randall uh, went to school with Rog. Um, and so he's one of the assistant coaches and, 
He used to say, he used to beat me up and take my lunch. A little bit older. <laughs> he would do that too. Oh, he did his bully. Um, and then like, uh, you know, we had an awesome time. Josh Cronkwell was there. Danny Lee was there. Oh. So it was that sort of era of real good rugby players coming through. Yeah. And yeah. it's cool, cool to be at with, um, you know, some awesome, awesome players. Um, any other famous names, famous sports that went through there? No, I, can't, I don't really think so. We were probably like pretty much a rugby school. Like just before us was like the era of all eras for Hawks Bay. So that was the um, Timu pod, um, yeah. you know, that sort of era where it was just like Paul Cook, remember Cookie? And yep. those guys came out of like Linda's Farm, Napier Boys, Hastings Boys, the Cooper Brothers out of St. John's. There's some big names there. Yeah, I mean, Hawks Bay, they used to call Otago uh, Hawks Bay B. <laughs> Because everybody used to um, go to uni. Yeah. I think they gave, gave everybody um, free tuition and stuff. Eh? So everyone was like, I'm going to go to Otago. And so I think Otago team used to roll out seven or eight Bay Boys. Yeah. You know, in most games. And, you know, I think for Hawks Bay, hard and fast day during the, doesn't rain a heck of a lot. So you got good running rugby. Yeah. So some good footy players come out of there over time. Yeah, nice. Um, any other interests and hobbies? Nah, pretty much love sports. Um, I mean, the one that probably now as I got older is I love golf. Golf's been fun, like learning that. Didn't really play when I was younger. Younger, I was kind of told by the old man is golf course is not for our family. <laughs> so for a rugby playing family from Hawke's Bay, you don't go to golf. And my, but I, I love golf now. That's probably the number one hobby. It's a, it's a real mental sport, isn't it? Like there's a I, lot of challenges. Fun, I reckon there's nothing harder. I yeah. sort of divide it into two sports with the mental side. There's ones where you initiate movement and yep. there's ones where you respond to movement. And it tends to be the sports where you initiate movement, maybe like golf and tennis, you know, where you have to serve um, baseball, we have to pitch cricket, where you have to bowl. Mm. That's where people sort of get the yips and stuff. Like it's yeah. you're not, you're not being natural or playing in front of you. You're just responding to, you know, that's quite easy. Like if you hit a ball, all your natural instincts take over, you go get the ball. But when you have to start the movement um, mentally, I reckon that's way, way tougher than, than the toughest sports to do. And I reckon goals at the top of that list. And it's Rick, funny. Yeah. I actually like uh, it's a cross between when you've got a goal kick and you've got to yep. play golf, real similar, yeah. but then I just reckon, as many mental battles. Yeah. I reckon rugby goal kicking and line-out throwing to me are yep. the two potential places where you can get stuck like actually freeze and go man i don't actually know what to do now to move so particularly light out throws eh? we've seen that two way eh? where guys just get on a bad run two or three in a row and then goal kicking same thing miss your first couple and all of a sudden have i ever done this before yeah it's funny aaron because you can see it in the, the hookers you can see it in their eyes eh, going yeah. to a pressure for the line out yeah yeah and it's often like um you know this is where the things that we talk a lot about around routine and and um trying to normalize a behavior so it just becomes like this i've done this a thousand times yes the situation has changed but the behavior is something that i'm really capable of mm. um, but you know it's what mike tyson says hey eh? everyone's got a plan to get smacked in the face yeah <laughs> he's got some real in-depth things going on when, on his podcast that he talks about which are just crazy i've listened to and his thought and his mentality behind it, like what it used to be compared to now, obviously. Yeah, I listened to him with Joe Rogan, I think it was a couple of months ago, and I was like, whoa, yeah. man, this is either one seriously messed up dude yeah. um, who's done some incredible internal work to even be alive. Yeah. But then you could see, like, you see it with some of these guys, they see those demons just wanting to sort of jump out every now and then, and he seems like he's done an amazing job of trying to manage himself. And that's probably the word, managers, managing himself, right? Because you can tell, like, and he's open about it. He's sort of like, they're there and they want to jump out, but I've got, I've got to keep them inside me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, what, by the sounds of it, everything I've read about, what is he exposed to as a young fellow, eh? Yeah. Like, it's almost like you start off with such a scarred soul. Yeah. It's a scarred mind. Like, you just have to work and work and work to get back to normality. Yeah. And, um... You know, but like once again, it gives a little bit of insight to a eh? like that whole thing of suffering and and adversity. Mm. You know what it, what it can do is I reckon that's where you get the gold. I reckon that's where you get wisdom and insight and the ability to help others. 
you don't often get that from your victories. You get that from your adversity. And I think he's a sort of an example of that now, isn't he? Yeah. Sure. Um, kicking on from there, where, where did your professional journey start for you? Yeah, so I ended up just going to the States sort of when I was 2021. Um, and then when I was over there, I sort of ran into sort of serendipitously uh, a baseball player who um, had moved to the place where I was living and sort of needed some help. And initially it was around like um, managing his life. So his life was pretty chaotic. And a lot of these guys are. Um, and then it sort of morphed like it went from, okay, I'm just helping this dude with his life to, you know, he ended up going through a really difficult patch, just about lost his whole career, um, had some massive anger issues. I think, um, you know, he had a manager up against the wall turning blue one day and, um, you know, just was at the end, just about at the end of his work. We just really worked hard at just trying to help him. And how old were you? I was 24 then. So okay. now I'm 43. So it's about 20 years ago. So I've been doing it for about 20 years. So, and he ended up, um, you know, doing a pretty amazing job. He won three World Series with the San Francisco Giants. Yeah. And so he's one of their key pitchers through 2008 to 2016. And um, by the end of it, I ended up like almost watching, I suppose that's where my career started, watching all these guys and sort of the way I describe it is so many people have incredible capability. So I, the mental game to me is pretty simple. It's like the difference in the, the top, top guys is their capability, what they're capable of, and what they deliver under pressure. The gap is really small. So we just call it shrinking the gap, basically, is sort of in my mind. Like, but then you have guys whose gap's massive, right? Like, how many guys you play with, Issa, who, like, capability-wise, unbelievable. What they can actually deliver under the pump, not even close. Yeah. So... That's sort of what I saw a lot, you know, especially in baseball. And just quickly on that, Aaron, is that where, like, Anissa, is that where you'll see guys off the field, you know, train incredibly, and then you get them on the field and you think, why is that not transposing to the field? Why aren't you showing us what you do off the field? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this, uh, I don't know if you guys have got Amazon Prime, but there's an unbelievable lockdown documentary called The Test, and it follows Aussie cricket um, yeah. with Justin Langer for the last year. Unreal. Best sports stock I've ever seen. Yeah. Wow. Justin Langer has this line in there, and I, I was watching it uh, over the weekend. I thought, man, it's an unbelievably good thought. He said, we are really, really good preparers, but we're not very good at playing. Mm. And I just thought that's a real interesting concept in sports because often we say we prepare well, we play well. Yeah. Not like, yes, I think you've got to prepare well. Like, there's no doubt about that. But the automatic assumption of if we have great preparation, we end up having great performance. I think it underestimates the role of the mental side of the game is that your ability to translate that preparation into performance will be mostly a mental thing. Yeah. Like, it's... uh... I've always found it amazing how if your habits and your, you know, your daily routine and if you aren't differentiating what game day mentality is like in your, if you're doing a walkthrough, if you're doing a training during the week, um, all these habits build this level of um, capability far greater than the biggest, strongest and fittest athletes out there. Um, and the ones that do it more consistently over a long period of time are the ones that you sort of remember. Yeah, I think you did right. And I think, you know, like the guys that can manage themselves in those situations, right? Like there's always a really good question we ask, you know, of the athletes is, you know, when you go out to play, whether it's a, you know, say something like cricket, whether it's a game at Cornwall Park or whether, you know, like with Lockie, whether it's a World Cup final, do you treat it the same or do you treat it differently? Yeah. But I, I have this I have this argument a lot of my time up north and so many people bring emotion into a game, which is which is an important part of any game. When you're standing there in front of your home nation national anthem going around, like you can't help but be emotion when you're playing in front of, you know, family and country. But then if you're putting that same mentality into, you know, a game away that, you know, I'm not going to diss any New Zealand franchises or teams, but if you're going away to a team that's not sort of um, of higher rank, like, are you differentiating the two? Why don't you just go out and compete the same as you would if you were playing the ultimate test match? 
No, I like, I like it. I like the sort of analogy I've used too is like if you're having heart surgery with your doctor, right? Do you want your doctor thinking about your family, thinking about the consequences, thinking about the crowd, or you want him to be thinking about his job? Yeah. Mm. And I reckon that's a real sort of good way to look at it. Like, yes, the emotion is real, yeah. but if you think about the emotion and not about your role on the biggest stage, I reckon you're more likely not to get the job done. Yeah. So true, eh? So true. Yeah. Um, yeah. What What are the What are your biggest learnings from dealing with you know, driven sports people? I think what you you sort of mentioned it before, but it's a it's a sort of underestimated thing. It's the thing about competing. And so there's just these guys like um, Jeremy Affelt, who's the guy I was talking about before, who's pitcher for the Giants, and to put it in context, I spent ten years in the US with working in baseball and you know someone like Jeremy and I think of another guy we were Steven Souza Jr. who he's with the Cubs he's a center fielder I mean like like F out you'd play Monopoly you'd lose you'd beat him at Monopoly he would salt for three days you know those sort of you know you've been around those guys they they're like they just can't handle losing like and it's personal and it's hits their manhood <laughs> I don't know there's something I don't know where it comes from and whether it's healthy, I don't even know if it's healthy. What about like sort of Pete Carroll's um, mindset, sort of win forever? That like if you're throwing a piece of paper in a bin, you are trying to get it. Um, yeah. If you're if you're contemplating, should I have an extra burger or a chip? You're you're contemplating what the result's going to be. Like it's you go down that track, you sort of you sort of live by it. Yeah, I mean it's same with the guy called Albert Bandura, who was sort of a. A famous sort of psychologist on the whole thing of goal setting. And he said, you know, you, your, your massive goal can only be accomplished by breaking it down into small daily tasks, right? And um, I think the challenges with these guys is, is you know, like I love Pete Carroll. I'm like a huge Pete Carroll fan. And the thing that I love what Pete Carroll does, and, and I think this is where the danger is for some of these guys, is I, I call it outcome obsession. So it's fine to be a competitor, but when your self-worth begins to get measured by outcome, then outcome doesn't become something you're striving before. It becomes something you need. And you would know, like you can have bad wins, like bad wins, like from a performance aspect and great losses. Whereas like, I just got beaten on the day. Like that was seriously what they laid out there. You know, a little bit like England in the semifinal rugby world cup, right? They just, I, like we can get all introspective about our performance. They were outstanding, right? They played their final in that day. Like, so then, but if your measure, and this is what we talk a lot about with athletes, if your measure of value as a man is on outcome, whew, you're in trouble. Yeah. So it's how do you manage that competitiveness, eh? And yet not have it be so dominating and polarizing that it begins to define who you are. Is that why Sonny Bill differentiates himself from... Uh, other people, because I've heard some quotes of him saying after the World Cup final, this doesn't define, after the, sorry, the loss, it doesn't define me as who I am. Mm, it's an interesting one. Like, I think we're all sort of searching for that thing where, you know, my identity isn't who I am, not what I do. But yeah. it always crosses over, right? Yeah. It always crosses over. So, you know, I, I, I would be naive to say, hey, by the way, you know, what you do at work is irrelevant to who you are as a man. No, because what you do at work is often a reflection of who you are as a man. It's your values, it's your behaviors. But you guys know, like, right now, you're facing some situations that are totally, we all are, totally outside of our control. Like, you know, for me, if there's no sports, I have no job. They're totally outside of my control. I can't do anything about it. So what can I control today are my behaviors, my mindset, my attitude, the way I talk to my kids, to my family. And I think, you know, I think we have to have non-outcome success measures. That's probably the best way to describe it. Mm. in times where the outcome is outside of your control. And I think sports is a primary example of something that you can't control. Like if the opposition turns up and you just get beat, you just get beat. Mm. And so I think, you know, the, where it seems to, you know, marry well for guys and Sonny Bill's maybe a good example of this is where, yeah, rugby is not who I am, but it is the canvas to where I can express who I am. Yeah. That's probably the best way I can articulate it. Um, Mate, you need our office. That's <laughs> cool. Yeah, like so that. if you have a set of values, right, man, you have a set of values, this is who I am. This is who I believe I should be. Like you think of, 
Issa, it must have been an interesting challenge for you just thinking through your journey of being a young Pacific Island boy who likes to express himself and play good, hard, fast footy. Now you're up in the north. How did you like stay true to that identity but fit within the wider framework of a team who may wanted to play the game with a different set of values? Yeah, it's funny because um, Doug Hallett was already up in Munster when I was there and he said, don't try and change them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. A really true piece of advice. I think you come from a different environment down in Super Rugby where um, you're all trying to get better from a different perspective. You can't just think you're going to go and um, input that onto a new culture and expect them to be your thing. You know, I think it was really important to sort of buy into their culture first and foremost um, mm -hmm. and understand their values and beliefs um, and then just try and part bits of wisdom where you can. Um, and there's more ways to skin a cat also. I think it teaches you another way to actually go about winning um, when you have to learn it from a different point of view. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, that's probably what we face, the top thing with our athletes right now is just uh, identity. I don't think we probably talk a lot enough about it. Like, like rugby is not a definer. It's just an expression. I, I, I've sat down with Kane and the Money Empire team and... You know, I told them my why in life was be the best dad that I could be. Like, mm -hmm. it was pretty irrelevant. Um, if I'm trying to be the best dad that I can be, then, you know, everything else will come of that. And it sort of helps mold your decisions. So, you know, I think I learned quite early on. It's no different to me being in the finance industry now. I still want to be the number one dad. Um, and how I act and conduct myself at work just all impacts that. Yeah, awesome, awesome. But you find, like, especially the young guys, they don't really have that framework, eh, when they come in. So rugby is life, life is rugby. Um, is, that, is that an issue from the from the schools in terms of pushing it on them that you, if you want to be a professional rugby player, you've got to give everything now, and they're, like, 17, you know, and that's all they know and want to do? Is that an issue? Because if I'm relating that to a financial literacy point of view, it creates massive ramifications when they hit 30. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging one because we know they just got a window, eh? Yeah. So it's not like other careers where you, you know, so if you become an accountant at 23 after doing all your uni, at 63, there's no reason you can't be doing that, right? Yeah. Like you can just, you got 40 year window to earn your money. So, you know, I sort of have a bit of sympathy towards some of the acceleration programs post school. Like I understand what they're trying to do that, like for these kids, you know, like you have, your top money earning years, what in, in rugby, are probably going to be 22 to 32. We'll just make up a yeah. sort of number, right? Your first four years, you're sort of getting settled in. You might break through a little bit earlier. And then at the back end of your career, you might have some good years overseas, you know, up to around 35. But mostly by 35 to 40, and this is what happened with the baseball guys. We knew by 35 to 40 that they're over, like their actual big money. And of course, over there, they're earning astronomical money. Um, but you know, like the other side of it is, is you've only got this short window, seven to 10 years, like there's part of you that goes, I've got to give it everything I possibly can to make it during that time. And then if I don't make it, you know, 25, I can get on with my life. Yeah. There's a bit of stress. Like I've done quite a bit of work with golfers who are like, I got to go get an education. I got to go get an education. And like, well, what happens if you just play golf full time from 18 to 25 and figure out that you weren't good enough? to make it a living. What's wrong at 25 going to uni? Yeah. You know, just at a rush sometimes though, to get everything done. Well, I think, I think that it's the old adage, you know, you go to school, go to uni and then you go to work. But you know, you think about it as an 18 year old, do you really know what you want to do in your life? No. So like a lot of people go study and study a degree they don't even use or want to use when they finish. No, no, I was, uh, I was talking about it cause I got a, um, I got a teenage daughter who's sort of, you know, that she's in her late, oh, she's 15, but they're starting to think about what she wants to do afterwards. And, you know, and it's, it's a hard one because, you know, like we all always sort of have three questions, particularly with people that are sort of in moments like now with their careers is, you know, what do you love? What are you good at? And where is your opportunity? Mm. You can answer those three things. I reckon you get a good shot at finding a good career. Yeah. You know, like, what do you love? That does change, <laughs> you know, like, but you'll probably find a general theme. Like I love helping people turn their potential into performance. I, mean, I just I wake up, that's my whole gig. So I had to figure out, okay, what skills do I need to be able to do that? 
and where are their opportunities now thankfully everybody wants to get better <laughs> so i got a good i got a good market you know whether it's business corporate whether it's sports but you know i think you're dead right like at 18 if you ask that question to an 18 year old what do you love what are you good at where's your opportunity how do we even expect them to answer it mm. pretty tough yeah. And if I think of myself as like an 18 year old in finance, that's the last thing you want to get involved in. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking like 18 year old kids who go and do like big homes and that I'm like, wow, what makes you interested in economics at 18? There's something. There's nothing. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> I, uh, I've got a, I've got a good friend who wrote a letter to him, 30 year old has, to uh, his younger self when he retired and he said uh, uh, two bits, three bits of advice. He said, one, every once in a while, just wake up and smell the roses. Um, enjoy the moment that you're in. Um, he said, two, uh, prepare for life after rugby. Um, it's going to come to an end at some stage. Um, and he goes, three, uh, if you want to make it to the absolute top and be a lion and a professional and play 100 caps, one and two are going to be completely irrelevant. Yeah, how good. Yeah, it's a, such a, it's such, you're so right, eh? Like, and just having that flexibility with your life, right? And he's successful as can be. He's ballooned all these traits along the way from going on Lions tours, playing 100 caps for his country. Um, but he said, like, if you're going to give it your all, give it your all. And then yep. when you finish, just right. jump into the next challenge and you'll have all these skills to help get you through it. Yeah. And that's what I think we underestimate. Maybe when we talk to our athletes, we sort of have this thing of, and I really like the welfare and well-being programs that they do. Um, but I wonder whether we at times need to just say, listen, whether it's formal or not, informally, you're learning some amazing skills. Yeah. Like amazing skills. And they do translate. We need to probably encourage our guys more. They do translate. Yeah. Um, somewhere along the line, you will get a job and you will have really good things you've learned that will really help your workplace. No, very true. Um, talk to us around any influential role models. Yeah, I think probably for me in the in the mental skills space, David Galbraith, like um, he is just a legend. Like probably was the guy that really helped shape probably not so much the the performance side, um, but certainly helped shape massively the whole mindset side of like how to live from courage. Like I suppose that's DG's major message is that you know if you're not if you're not if you're if you're comfortable you're not courageous like real cutting to the you know comfort and courage can't go together yeah yeah i mean he's just a man um he's just a man in that regard and uh so him from that i think from a um from a real like performance side of things um there was a guy that he's passed away now a guy called ken revisa and he was sort of a, a first guy that got into Major League Baseball. So um, back then, there was no um, sort of mental skills in baseball. And he was sort of the first guy. So that's probably professionally those two. Um, and then, you know, from coaching, man, I love Pete Carroll. Yeah. I, love, I just love that you can be the best in the world and have a hell of a time enjoying it, staying connected with people and having fun. Yeah. Like, that combo to me is everything. It's interesting. I don't know if you guys noticed this week, but attention between Tom Brady and um, Bill Belichick as Brady's exiting because Brady's like, man, I just can't do you. <laughs> I can't do the intensity of the Patriots way. Like I'm not having fun. Yeah. No, I'm winning championships. I'm not having fun. That's uh, really weird because a good friend who was, who was an All Black Toast, I spoke to him a while ago, and he just said. And it wasn't part of this All Black era, it was part of the last. And he said, I didn't have any fun along the way. Like, it was that intense that yeah. he just didn't enjoy his time. It took, him, it took him to actually go to Europe to play, to actually stop and enjoy the moment and enjoy the ride at the same time. He said he went six or seven years and he just didn't have fun. What do you reckon, though? Like, you've been in those settings, bro. And, I mean, there is a real thing there, eh? Like, you have to, you have to go hard, right? You have to be focused yep. massively on trying to be the best that you can to get to the highest level. How do you think you do that and also really enjoy that journey? 
Yeah, I think you have to, um, well, a lot of the time when you're taking the outcome out of it and you're focused on the process and everything about it, you know, I think you've got a better chance of not defining your mood by the outcome of the weekend and you can have far more fun along the way. I think also, as bad as it may be, you've sort of sometimes got to fabricate some fun along the way um, and pencil that into the season to say, hey, here's an hour, let's have fun, lads. But it's, um, it's more a moment of, a more, or more a case of enjoying each other's company in a setting that is set up in the right way that, you know, and it doesn't have to be revolved around drink. Maybe it does um, every once in a while, but like if it's just enjoying good food together, I think connecting outside of those settings actually helps you enjoy the moments along the way. And then you're going to flip the switch and just get straight back into performance mode. But I think you've sort of got to sometimes fabricate those moments. I like that. We I came up with a triangle that we've used as teams. So just imagine a triangle with the three sort of corners and we had fun, focus and connection. Mm. Then we just asked teams, where's your sweet spot and where versus where you're currently at. Yeah. Find there'd be a lot of teams they would be like high on focus and they forgot to have fun. Yeah. And they weren't in their sweet spot whatsoever. Yeah. Tell me, is that what you think the 2011 All Blacks when they win the World Cup, they were under so much pressure that uh, the enjoyment of the win may have been taken out of it? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because, you know, we had that quarterfinal and a couple of players might have had a blowout. Was that before the semi or something? Yeah. <laughs> So that, I reckon that's all you need. Like, yeah. I think that's all the evidence you need is that, you know, guys were stressing to the level yeah. that they needed to anaesthetize themselves from the stress. Mm-hmm. And that's all a lot of the substance abuse or those sort of things around sport, isn't it, right? You just want to anaesthetize yourself. You don't want to feel it anymore. You want to escape from it. You know, it's, it goes back to that sort of very, very ancient fight or flight right like how do i escape feeling under the pump yeah well for some guys alcohol is a great escape right because those three four five hours of intoxication you don't feel that you don't feel that stress it's gone mm-hmm. sadly you wake up and it's back <laughs> um but i think that was probably maybe 2011 that was all you needed to look at really that might have been the thing that was interesting to me Hey, and you know, another question too. Um, the mental skills side, was that first first introduced in, in American sport? Yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, probably formally. Like, I think what, what sort of, it became very clear is that as sport became more pressurized, so you think about back in the earlier days, there wasn't a heck of a lot of pressure around sport. Yeah. Because it didn't have the TV audiences you know, like if a, someone performed in an Olympics in 1936, three days to get back in the newspaper or I think yeah. once TV came in and I think once your performance was being analyzed, like you think of ESPN, you think of the introduction of NFL Live, NBA Today, like you have got your performance. Everybody's looking at you. Know, look at breakdown here on Tuesday nights in New Zealand. Like performance has been analyzed, broken down and being judged, if you want to use that term. Mm-hmm. So I think once that was introduced, people understood like there are now external things, not just internal. There are external things that are infecting my internal you know, equilibrium that are saying I've got to perform because the cost of not performing are quite high. Yeah. And that's when I think we got to that fundamental question, which is still to me the fundamental question around mental skills is are you playing the game? to express yourself and to enjoy it? Or are you playing it to avoid failure? Mm. It must be really hard playing for a privately owned like franchise around the world where the owner is dollar dollar driven, right? And it's all about winning on the field to get the dollar outcome. The, the pressure they must be under would be immense. Yeah, I remember there was a guy that um, was in the Giants, Michael McCain, who was unbelievably starting pitcher. I think he signed like a seven-year $140 million deal or something like that. And like his numbers were never the same. And I reckon one of the main reasons was that the expectation that now came with being the highest paid pitcher at that point in baseball and having to deliver back in performance what you've sort of worth, um, I reckon that was a massive, massive performance inhibitor for him. So I think, you know, that was a, 
and then the owners the owners aren't probably as involved in um in american sports as much as we probably think like you normally have the buffer with the gm but if you want to watch an interesting sort of one i don't know if you guys saw that netflix thing on the mumbai indians <laughs> yeah. yeah that was ownership in after the game talking to the players that's probably pretty intense yeah on that what are what are your biggest challenges to date yeah um do you mean professionally or just in life or just professionally like what what do you see what are some of the biggest challenges you see I think the, probably the number one challenge is having, having the athletes see the mental side of it as a skill um, rather than something that's a personality trait and then working on it like a skill and not just working on it once you hit the bottom of the hill. There are probably the couple of things like, so, you know, with all the teams that I work with, I try to be pretty clear at the front end. Listen, I'm, I don't operate in a deficit model. So I'm not an ambulance. When guys are not going well, they come and talk to me. Yeah. Like there's probably three things that make an athlete good. It's their body, it's their skill with their craft and it's their mind. Mm -hmm. So those three things are, and, and like did an interesting thing with all the teams that I worked with when I first started, I asked them, give me a rating out of five on what you're doing in those areas. So body, often it's a four skill craft for mind one. So one or two or so like, this is, you know, of course, unscientific research, but I'd say 90% of the players that I've worked with would be a one or two out of five related to the intent and work they're doing on thinking well. Mm. So the biggest challenge is shifting that paradigm from uh, you can actually grow. That's the big thing. You can get better under pressure. You can learn how to think well, um, but it is a skill and you have to train it. And I think I don't know what your experience was, Issa, that there's a lot of the service providers, I think, in sports come from a too technical background at times. Yeah. And they come in and they don't actually give the, the athlete the real simple practical tools to go and train something away from the game or in training. So when it comes to game time, they can implement it. Yeah, well, like, if um, I always... I always even go back another step and think if the culture that you're involved in and the value mm. and habits that you're living by aren't um, of a positive aspect, then you're starting behind the curve anyway. Um, and it's impacting your performance before you've even um, worried about your performance, you know? So often cultures really can really kill young people's careers before they even take off. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of research came out of the British Olympic uh, research and they said 70% of people's behaviours are determined by the environment they're in at any given time. Mm. And so, you know, we are, how do you create an environment that maximises the ability of the people you have in it? Yeah. You know, what are the things that need to be in that environment? And like, like say, you know, off the top of my head, I think of connection, I think of belonging, I think of honesty, I think of getting better every day, right? But I think of positivity. Imagine being in a culture that was negative all the time. So, so you're dead right. It's not that helpful to teach people visualization if they're hating being in the environment. Like it's just like trying to keep teach someone a reverse sweep before they've learnt forward defence, right? Yeah. Is that one correlation? Is that one correlation, Aaron? You would see between the corporate world and the sporting world. Is environment. I reckon, like a lot of my work in the last few years has been in the corporate space because. People have great processes, they have great plans, they have great people, and they're not delivering performance. Yeah. That's where the culture or the environment side is everything. So one of the questions is, that I ask a lot of my corporate clients is, does your culture, is it an enabler or an inhabitor to delivering on your strategy? Mm -hmm. a great question, right? Yeah. So are the behaviors in your culture do they help your strategy get executed or they prevent your strategy get executed? So for example, I remember working um, with one company who were, was up in Singapore and they were real high on innovation, but they had like 20 processes yeah. Yeah. for one little act. So don't tell me you're high on innovation. Yeah. You say you are, but you all of your behaviors say that you prevent innovation. Yeah. And so your culture doesn't actually support your strategy. Mm. And so a good culture doesn't just emerge out of nothing. 
So like, for example, if you're working with a company, the first thing I say, well, let me look at your strategic plan. And once I've seen that, I go, okay, well, what are the key cultural behavior pillars that are going to be critical to you to execute that? So it might be like, we got to stay connected and communicate here. We've got a big thing. Okay, what does that look like every day? Who's measuring that and who's holding each other accountable? So it's having, a, yeah, it's having a framework to understand where culture fits because culture can become sexy and yeah. real trendy, but it's not, it's not. It's just culture is a set of behaviors that are important to you as a group to deliver the strategy that you're trying to do. Mate, I remember doing a walk up in Dublin for a San Fran-based company and a couple of their values were the jellyfish for transparency and the dog for loyalty. And I was just sitting there going, what a crop of crap this is. And I told them that. I was like, I come from a rugby high-performance background where it's black and white when you're performing. And they were so caught off guard, but then actually gave me feedback before going, no one's actually said that to us. Nah, nah. No, but I think people get it mixed up, like you said, like, like if you can see where it fits, if you can see why it's important, if you see why it's valued, it's like going back to what you're saying before, even around mental skills, like one of the biggest inhibitors for it to be successful in my world is having a system or particularly a head coach who doesn't value it. Yeah. So all you become, you're a silo, like you're just sitting on the side talking to guys when their lives are going miserable and you're making zero impact on their performance. I hear so, you know, for me, if it's not integrated, like I am part of the team, part of the coaching staff, you see me like you see a technical guy or you see me like you see a trainer. We're not doing this because you're not going well. We're doing this because it's a part of your game that you get better at and we'll do it regularly and we'll have a plan. You know, it's so even with the guys I work with, I try and do it like a trainer. We assess where you're at. We prescribe some, some tools for you. And then we monitor how that's going for you. So if we can approach it that way, going back to your original question, I think we've got a shot at actually helping guys think better under pressure and delivering on their capability. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Just, um, just briefly, just talking about sort of some of your, your sports involvement, the Warriors in 2016? Yeah, that was awesome. It was a really um, difficult and challenging time. Like, I suppose I'd just come out of um, being associated with baseball and won everything. Like, like the Giants won World Series in 2010, 2012, and 2014. So three World Series in five years, you know, as a modern dynasty, just doesn't happen. Like, and just helping some of those guys in that journey, you get back and, you know, I thought, okay, it's my first New Zealand project and, you know, I'd done a bit of corporate stuff. I thought, oh, now I'll jump into a, a project. And I got approached to say, would you be? And, um, and, and like, I, it was an amazing experience. And, like, so much of it I learned. I, probably what I learned, I learned so much is that probably part of it was my inability to adjust from coming out of quite a American and positive. And, <laughs> you know, like, that was a challenge. Like, I was yeah. like, man, he's a negative. <laughs> You know, like I used to go into like in my with my American friends, and like even now the guys I work with who they're on a break from from uh, baseball at the moment because of uh, the shutdown. But I'll I'll come up with an idea. They're like, "Yeah, man, let's give it a go." You know, yeah. <laughs> New Zealanders are like, "No, nah, man, that won't work." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was probably like from a mindset. It's like like in America, it felt like they would give you all the support and resource to see if something would work. Yeah. Over here, it felt like they'd give you five reasons why it won't, and then you had to battle through those reasons to, to, oh. to get... Yeah. So that was a hard... So I'm not saying the Warriors were like that. I like. I really like Jim Doyle. have a lot of respect for Steve Kearney. Um, really loved the players. Like, one of probably the highlight for me of that whole experience was um, being with Kieran Forer. Cool. And so ended up having a really long-term friendship with him. And just being part of his journey, I remember him arriving at Mount Smart, completely broken, you know, relationship breakup. Had, I think he had um, some pretty massive mental health issues. Mm. He tried to take his life, which was documented, I think, pretty well, and um, was just a wreck. And just helping him a little bit on his journey and seeing him take responsibility. And, you know, I don't know, we really got the best out of him as a footballer with the Warriors. And, you know, that was a hard part of that. 
but just seeing him now and married and big family and happy and uh, you know, those are the things that are worth everything in sports is that went beyond the field eh? and it was about someone's life and the ability to help them get back on their feet. That was, that was really, really cool. Awesome. Awesome. Um, New Zealand football. Yeah, that was, um, that was an interesting one. So sort of, I got approached um, after the review. So um, Andrew Scott Howman, who was the sort of leading the PFA. So that was like the players association sort of approach to listen we got some some issues here and yep. so and they were pretty the reviews public so everyone can go and see the review it was pretty 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 bad um as far as what was happening and so um but once again we had an amazing group of girls so what we did was i mean we had a day out at murawai which you know i can't i can't talk about in person but just got them away and got them and what was so surprising is for many of them they'd never heard what each other had gone through yeah um, they never actually know what that was like. And then to see them, you know, we didn't quite get the job done at the World Cup. I wish we had it, but, you know, that team within like November got them together. They were broken, couldn't even know how to function. In June, we beat England women's team in Brighton and the first New Zealand team to ever beat an beat English senior team in football ever. And just to see that journey lost 1-0 and extra time to the Dutch in the World Cup, we ended up going to the final. And just seeing them take ownership of their culture and ownership of their environment was an amazing. And that, and so that was a that was an awesome experience of watching how a, a environment translated performance. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, just la- lastly, and just sport involvement, just the Chiefs now. What a what an awesome environment we've seen the you know over the last few years and now. Yeah, I mean, it's um the thing about it is you've had some key people working a in that. I mean, what are the things that you've noticed most that stick out to you? Oh, well, the people that are in charge that understand where they're, where they're heading and the direction that they're heading and the leadership they build within players, like they're the, they're the success that continues. It's not just a one-off. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the player leadership thing becomes critical. Eh? Yeah. It's like, I think it was, um, Wayne, Wayne Smith said something quite profound for a change, you know, just a legend, man. Like he said, um, you know, people won't own uh, your vision. They'll own their vision. Yeah. So how do you translate your vision and making it theirs? And I think that's a really, so, so like, you know, unless you have some real, real challenges, like Justin Langer with the, the Australian cricket team, you'll see in that, um, serious with quite an interesting approach he went quite dictative at the start because i think he needed to like this is who we are we're going to bring back pride to australia these are the values that make aussies great and like it wasn't collaboration it wasn't like you'll get a vote it was like this is we are so lost we need to i'm going to tell you who we are but then he delegated to the players to define that implement it and then live it Mm. So, you know, there's nothing worse. And, you know, this, this isn't about sports. This is about teams, right? There's nothing worse than a team where, you know, you can't quite connect to the purpose. Yep. And I think that's a, one thing that I'm really interested in challenging a lot, and even the teams that I talk to, is that this whole thing of individual purpose, I reckon, is a, a, a crock of BS. Yep. Um, I don't. I think it's a new idea. I think it's only in the last 40 years we've talked about what is my purpose. Yep. Like for of history we've had tribal purpose we've had team purpose we've had collective purpose and your job was just to find your place in that and i reckon it's a lot more healthy way of living like i don't have a purpose i have a family purpose we have a collective group my family we have a you know i have a, a, a purpose with the chiefs that's not my i'm not finding my purpose in that i'm seeing where do i give my skill and strength and weight to achieve that purpose yeah. and i think you know, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think the last 40 years of modern pop psychology, I think we've forgotten that our purpose has got to be bigger than ourselves. Yeah. And I think creating buy-in, like when you think about your own purpose, it's quite uninspiring. Like, yeah, to be a good dad's awesome. But no one else can do that. But you think about that and you just expand that a little bit more. You're like, man, what is, what about the purpose of what you guys do? We're trying to help create financial independence for more Kiwis. 
so they can do a b that's a mint purpose isn't it I remember after this COVID, it's going to become more and more prevalent, you know? It is. It is. And I think we've got to go back to this tribal or collective or community. You know, like, that was probably the warriors, what I learned. You ask a Pacific Island boy, what's your purpose? He'd just laugh at you. Mm-hmm. I, I have a family purpose, man. Well, I have a church purpose. I have a national purpose. I have a tribal purpose. I don't have a purpose. My purpose is to find where I fit in that and give what I can. Um, so I think that's going to be real important moving forward. Talking about COVID-19, Mr. Wallstrom. Yeah, my Aaron, well, I'm quite keen to know um, what would be the impact uh, this will have on people at the moment on lockdown through this process and then post that? Yeah, I think you're a great question, mate. Like, there's two things that I'm sort of working with with people right now i'm going to do something on instagram with the chiefs today later on is the first thing is your mindset around it so sort of the thing that i've been really encouraging a lot of people to do is one or two ways you can see this right so um number one is this is a incredible inconvenience that is disrupting my life okay that's number one number two is this is a unique opportunity of having four weeks that i'm never going to have again And I reckon that's a real, if you can go to the unique opportunity mindset. So alongside that, practically what, you know, we've talked to people about doing and did some stuff with Radio Sport on this the other day was just like, what's one thing you want to do in the next four weeks? Just one thing. Might be with your body. Okay, I might might want to knock off a couple of kegs. I might want to start an exercise program. You know, I mean, my wife, as soon as this was announced, she goes, hey, for five years, I've been talking about painting the house, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I guess I know what I'm doing for the next four weeks. You know, there's no interruption. There's limited responsibility. This is a different deal for us. So I think, imagine if you looked at it going in four weeks, what's one part of my life that can be better mm. um, in these next four weeks that I could work on that I've always wanted to, but I just haven't really given time to. So when people go stir crazy or they talk about being cabin fever, I think we sort of misinterpret that. I don't think it's about time inside i think it's about not having purpose mm-hmm. not having focus to your day like so that would be the other thing i encourage create focus to your day what can i focus on today what's going to be important mm-hmm. what are many goals many tasks um little things i can do that can help me like keep myself mentally engaged because mental health is going to be a massive issue in the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. for us as a nation and our, i reckon the biggest uh one of the biggest, I think, contributors to bad mental health is boredom. Mm. But when you're bored, you don't have focus, you don't know what you're doing, you wake up and it's a, a whatever, Whew, that's a tough deal. But if you wake up going, these are three things I want to do today. So I want to exercise, I want to go for a walk outside, I want to ride my bike, I want to have an hour of quality time with my kids working on a project, um, I want to tidy up the garage, you know, I'm going to start out this workout routine. I want to go study this. I want to read about this. This is one area that I reckon I'm a little bit lacking in my work. Man, I'm going to take the next four weeks and go deep on the subject to see if I can grow a little bit. I talk to a lot of guys that have retired and I've been through it twice myself. And everyone talks about, um, you know, you've been told what to do, what to wear, what to eat for near on 10 to 15 years, if you're lucky. And then all of a sudden that's taken away from you. And I think a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to have so much time on my hands. I'm like, man, that is scary. Like when you actually have had the three-week holiday and then all of a sudden the life around you carries on as normal, and then you're just left with all this time and empty void. It's a real scary feeling. Um, and I could just imagine so many people going through that in this lockdown through COVID-19 right now. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. Like I get to the end of two weeks of Christmas holidays if I have them. My wife's like, man, you got to find something to do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that I'm, it's, you know, it's not about being restful. It's about having intent, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's having intent with your time. And I hate the concept of just wasting time. There's only so much you have of it. And like right now, we have unlimited time. That's, yeah. the, that's the gift and the curse that we have. So if it's not structured or is intentional, the curse is when will this thing ever end? I can't do three more weeks of this. But if you're intent, if you're structured, if you've got a bit of focus, you know what you're trying to accomplish. And man, like right now is a bit of a gift. And I suppose the other thing that we have to also understand this for a lot of people, you guys included, all of us in the same boat here. Um, how do we 
manage our anxiety and stress around finance. That's going to be a big one, isn't it, Kane? I mean, that's probably what you guys are going to like work through. And, um, and also, you know, with stress or anxiety, the number one contributor to that is the un uncontrollables and the unknowns. Yeah. And they're so relevant. We don't know yeah. what's going to happen. And we don't, we can't control lockdown, right? Like we have no vote on that. We can't control the markets post. And so, you know, um, once again, and, you know, we can talk a, more about this at another time, but I reckon you've got to have a real focus on what you can control and what you can't. Yeah. So like, We'll, I'll do a thing today online where I'm just going to do a circle and put what are three things you can control. So the three things we've decided as a family are real simple, right? It's um, attitude, words, and behaviors. That's our focus for the next three weeks. So we can, we can do those three things. What can't we control? When the lockdown ends, um, what will happen to us financially? Um, but that's a real discipline, difficult thing to do. But I think that'll be one of the biggest uh, contributors to how people mentally go through this time. It's interesting in the finance space, Aaron, we always talk to our clients about, you know, the two words proactive and reactive. And people that have been proactive probably for the last two years around setting themselves up correctly, structure-wise, strategy-wise, goal implementation around finance, will go through this uh, four, eight-week, 12-week lockdown and probably relieved. Um, because they're actually, you know, a, a bit more sound in, in their financial um, setup, whereas the reactive people uh, have done nothing and now reacting to the situation and the ones that are going backwards. Um, so we're, we're big on that space with our clients. Like, we don't know this was ever going to happen, but for whatever, you know, it could be loss of job in a normal circumstance or whatever, we're, we're big on that space around the proactive and reactive stuff. Yeah, and I think that'll be critical moving forward, right? You know, like, this is going to be a big jolt for people. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, the best way I can describe it, I think, for a lot of people, is it's like hitting a big reset button, isn't it? Yeah. Like, what things are important in your life and what do you need to reevaluate right now and what do you need to change coming out of it? Yeah. Um, and I hope people, you know, and I'm talking to myself here, have the ability to recognize what those things are as our value systems are reshaped through this period of that we might actually be able to change the way we live because it'd be a bit tragic if some of us know we need to change some of the things in our life and in eight weeks post lockdown it's business as usual yeah we, we say what is the normal going to be at the end of four or eight weeks should be maybe it is going to be a new normal yeah we don't know do we so we like you know there's not a manual for this is there no and that's probably one thing we need to as kiwis break habits right and yep. lockdown may have the ability to break a lot of habits down, but it's like you said, when it gets lifted, is it not, not to go back into your normal life where those bad habits start creeping back in? Yeah, I don't know if you guys have noticed, man, I'm not spending money. <laughs> Me neither, I can't. No. <laughs> it's, it's, my wife. I told my wife the other day, I'm not, I don't, I don't know if we're wearing money, honey, but I'm certainly not spending any. Like, there's just yeah. a weird deal. We said that as well. That is the one thing that you take a, a positive out of this. You can't spend anything. The only thing we spend on is grocery shop. That's it. That's right. You can't do anything online. You can't, you know, can't go out. Yeah, yeah it's probably probably challenging what I thought I actually needed versus what I actually needed. <laughs> and um, I suppose just moving on from COVID and rounding things off, um, obviously pulling back to our line of work, finance. Um, your financial educational literacy, what's been your sort of path or journey on that? You know, originally, I suppose my exposure was to, through the baseball guys. And like, that was thankfully really good because, you know, like some of them have one guy looking after their whole money. Yeah. So, you know, they're a small business. You're a hundred million dollar business. It's not small. It's quite big. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the thing I learned the most off them is sort of would have been really relevant to sort of to rugby and retirement. And even what we're going through now is that we used to have to work with the guys on those final parts of their career, taking their monthly spend down. It was a real yeah. interesting. So two years out, they might spend 200,000 a month and just making up the money. Now it's back to a hundred thousand. Now it's back to 50 and recognizing that there's going to be a day where um, that, 1.2 million per month doesn't come or that 20,000 a month doesn't come. And what have you done then? What have you done? One, what have you done with your investment side? So what you guys do, what have you done to prepare yourself for the future? Because, and it's amazing how many athletes don't realize that. Lisa, you probably know this. It stops, eh, bro? It stops. I mean, it's, 
it's no more that paycheck. Oh yeah, sweet, sweet. It's not there. That stops, and and the other side of it is rugby rolls on without you. It's <laughs> <laughs> professional sport. At the end of the day, it'll it'll just go, and don't think like it owes you anything because the paycheck stops, and then the game just leaves you as leaves you behind as well. Yeah, and so I probably am a little bit like a an athlete in that way is that I'm a contract base, you know, and a lot of my contracts are on performance. So if a team wins, I get re-employed. If a team loses, <laughs> I don't. Um, yeah. So, you know, financially we've had to, you know, thankfully we got a home. That's probably in, the, in 2011. So we feel like, man, we got so lucky and we're in Tauranga. So it's just gone. Yeah. I don't even know what it's worth. I do have an idea. It's well over double. On what yeah. So, you know, once again, where could have we got a investment that doubled in eight years? And so, you know, that's been huge for us has been able to be in property. Yeah. And because there is two, there's a lot of variables in our world, you know, like I'll have all my contracts coming up in the next six months. And if you don't get them renewed and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Um, but the property has definitely been hugely helpful. So that's your choice of investment property. Yeah, and um, and some shares. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So just a little bit. Taking a hammering at the moment. Uh, we might have got them out earlier in the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose, like anything, we always say to our clients is that when you're investing in asset, it's always time based. So you ride the ups and downs. So you know, if you're not creeping up to retirement and you've had a good whack. And we've talked to a lot of clients recently around KiwiSaver and that they've taken a lot of big hit on them they'll bounce back at some stage. So as long as you've got time on your side, you don't need it today, it's okay. Yeah, I think for, for most of us in sport and coming out of sport, it's, it's managing um, assets and cash flow. That's been yeah. for yeah. making sure you've got enough cash on hand. But as you can tell, it's not my area of expertise, so I will, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> hey, lastly, Aaron, what sort of, um, this is getting quite deep too, what sort of legacy do you want to leave on this earth? Well, that's a huge question. I mean, the thing for me is um, my family is probably the significant uh, part for me. So like my wife has multiple sclerosis and so she's been battling that for about nine, 10 years. So, so mobility is pretty poor and you know, walks with a crutch. And so that sort of readjusted even my whole perspective on how we want to move forward as a family. And, and I think if I could, you know, so sort of like what I talked about Karen, before if we could give tools and support and help and people actually have their lives not just on the field improved but away from the field improved and so you know my my legacy around that would be is helping as many people as i possibly can with a huge priority being my children to make sure that they maximize their potential and i suppose that was probably part of my motivation coming out of my life as a teenager and a young rugby player and being okay, I just reckon I never really maximized my potential and it sort of burned at me through my 20s. Mm-hmm. So by the time I had my 30s, I was like, nah, I'm not going to have a whole bunch of list of regrets around things that I didn't, didn't do, but I'm going to need some help. I'm actually going to need some people to get alongside me and help me on that journey, both of direction and accountability. And so I think that's what, you know, for me would be, if there's a hundred people in my life say, man, you helped me, then that would be unreal. Cool. Um, I'm going to round off five past you with a couple of quick fire uh, questions again to finish off. Um, have you ever sent an email or a text to the wrong person? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, what did I, um, I sent, I sent, I sent one to one of my mates that was meant to go to my wife. Yeah, <laughs> that's that is pretty relevant. We always hear that on these questions on the podcast, eh, sir? Yeah, yeah. Um, Aaron, uh, are you a good cook? Uh, good on the barbie. Okay, uh, so would you say your forte or, or the dish you do or something on the barbecue? Yeah, but what I quite, I've actually, my wife's an unbelievable cook, so I've actually quite enjoyed learning off her. Um, more and more, but definitely like a nice piece of steak, and I'm pretty anal about getting that right. Because you know you want to get that right, and um, got a Weber out the back, which have done a bit of smoking in. So like long cook leg of lamb for eight hours, or that sort of stuff. So it's sort of caveman-ish behavior. 
Um, this is pretty topical because probably most of the airlines are going to go under. Favorite airline to travel on? Uh, in New Zealand. I mean, I've just done so much with it, and I've been elite for like ten years, so hard to go away from them. But I would say Greg Foran, Karen's dad. Their, you yeah. know, their product is getting behind, and I, I had a couple of trips up to Northern Hemisphere with uh, Emirates and Qatar, and yeah. sharp hey. man. He would be an interesting character to sit down with at present to go through his mental... Uh, oh, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. Um, one food that you'd eat for the rest of your life if you if you could only have that choice? Roast lamb. Roast lamb. <laughs> I love roast lamb. Yeah. And with a sandwich yeah. with a relish. Yeah. Um, if you're a pair of shoes, what would they be? Uh, Jordans. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to get into this little bit of, um, you know, that sort of shoe collection thing, yeah. and I'm just like, I think I have to stop myself pretty soon. <laughs> hey, mate, they might be an asset that goes up over time. Yeah, the problem is I think I'll wear them. <laughs> hey, so to you, mate. Well, honestly, Aaron, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a fresh of, you know, great positivity to have a chat, have a yarn to you in a time like this. Yeah, mate. Well, I just thanks for the opportunity, and um, I really enjoyed it. Sweet. Um, to all, to everyone out there, all the um, Beyond the Field listeners, uh, stay tuned for our um, educational snippets throughout the lockdown period. Um, but to everyone else out there, be kind, be safe. Um, we'll all come through this.